Sí, mira, estoy pensando muchas cosas. Death by DVD. Classics. La, la verdad que no, no puedo seguir hablando de este momento. Your favorite live hits of Death by DVD. Back from the grave. This is Death by DVD. Classics, your favorite live hits of Death by DVD, back from the grave. I am your curator, Hank, the world's greatest, and this episode is one of the best episodes of Death by DVD. One of my favorite episodes. Actually, my favorite episode. And what makes it so great is the fact that I, Alexander Nash, and myself hardly talk the entire time. So, you know, it's got to be pretty great. <laughs> This episode was recorded on the one-year anniversary of the passing of Charlie Richard Ballin. Most of us know him better as Chaz, a man who changed my life, Alexander Nash's life as well, a, a lot of people's lives. But I'm going to stifle myself because this episode we were honored with the presence of Stephen Bissett, Greg Goodsell, and Roy Frumkis. These guys will tell you everything you need to know about Chaz. Originally broadcast live December 18th, 2010, we tried to clean this up a little bit as it being a 10-year-old recording of a live broadcast with multiple callers on cell phones. It definitely was a little rough. Well, it still is a little rough. But we tried to shine it up the best we could, so without further ado, I present to you, Here's Blood in Your Eye, a tribute to Chaz Ballin. Something to this day I am just amazed I got to be a fly on the wall for. Uh, shit. I put the thing together, and still, a decade later, I'm amazed. I will be back at the end of the show for my little song and dance, whatever my act is. Enjoy. By DVD, episode 73, Ring of Bright Water, which was actually one of uh, Chess Ballon's favorite movies of all time. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me, as always, is our show's resident, Klaus Kinski, Mr. Ang Sawyer. I like that. I like the Kinski reference. That, that brings joy and warmth into my life. But yes, I'm Hank, back for the 73rd episode. And this week, instead of advocating something cheesy and stupid or making very poor Joel Shepard jokes, I like to advocate a a man I never got to met, but I hold dear to my heart, uh, Chaz Ballin. And tonight's episode is uh, a tribute to Chaz, and we've got some very special people that uh, Nash is going to introduce in a moment. But uh, advocation, real-wise, comes to Chaz, because if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing right now. So that's, yeah, absolutely. that's the advocation you got going on tonight, guys. Yeah, if it wasn't for Chaz, I would not be doing the show right now. Hank would not be doing the show, and I wouldn't know half the things I know now and that's pretty much this kind of stuff is my life now and that's pretty much all due to jazz so um just to introduce we our thank guests, you good briefly. sir yes we thank you very much um from uh deep red magazine uh, a writer and good friend of jazz we have uh greg goodsell on the line right now greg nice to meet you all 
as Greg. Um, yeah, Greg's also the one who worked me with Don't Go Near the Park and Runaway Nightmare. So thank you very much, Greg, for introducing me to those horrible, horrible movies. Horrible, horrible movies. I have a story about Don't Go Near the Park that I will share later <laughs> on. Uh, Actually, I developed a good working relationship with the director, Lawrence D. Foldis. I introduced the film at the New Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles when it came out on DVD. And I did a very thorough career retrospective on Foldis for Scream magazine. And we've kept in touch. And thanks to Larry Foldis, I am in a documentary called Masters of the Grind where I talk about the various underground independent horror filmmakers that I've met along the years. So the audience gets a treat tonight. Those that listen to Death by DVD, you don't have to listen to Nash and I ramble incessantly about stupid stuff. You have pros and real people with experience in the horror realm that get to talk tonight. So I think our audience should really thank us because they get a break after 73 shows of garbage that you guys finally get to listen to something <laughs> worthwhile. <laughs> there you go. After a year... Here you go, fans. Yeah, it's Fan Appreciation Week. Um, also on the line, we have um, another good friend, Chaz, is um, a writer, uh, wrote for Deep Red, um, comic book artist, uh, drew Swamp Thing in its most significant years. Uh, and Hellblazer. That's a good one to bring him to. And Hellblazer, too. yeah. Yeah. So uh, we also have uh, Mr. Steve Bissett on the phone. Steve. Thanks for having me, folks. I uh, I'm, I was really happy when you invited me in, and it's great to be part of this. And and uh, nice to know that Chaz is being remembered. It's uh, one year tomorrow since uh, Chaz passed on, and, and it's a real honor to be here. And we're honored to have you here, Steve. Uh, couldn't thank you enough for being on tonight's show. It's important for all of us. Uh, but we also have um, uh, Roy... Um, Frunkus. I can't pronounce his name. I was trying to pronounce Frunkus. Yeah. Mr. Roy Frunkus. He should be calling in shortly. Very much shortly. Uh, director uh, or director of Document of the Dead, wrote Street Trash, Street Trash, The Substitute, and I think most importantly was a uh, zombie in the opening credits of Dr. Butcher, MD. That's the highest thing on his resume, I would put it anyway. Wow. Well, uh, we have the pie in the face zombie from Dawn of the Dead also. Indeed. <laughs> So, um, just I guess we should just start start the show. Yeah, I guess so, we should um, just get the ball ball rolling and get this on. Get the ball yeah. rolling. <laughs> Introduction well, is never our highest point of the show. Never for us. But uh, just a brief intro to like who Chaz was as a person as I knew him. Um, he was a, a mentor of all things. Um, he was a writer for film magazines, a, an artist. Um, and he really inspired me to get into this genre and introduced me to things like Italian horror and um, just horror art. And if you've ever seen my artwork, you'll, understand, you'll see the Chaz Ballon influence in my artwork as well. So Chaz Ballon's always been a very important aspect of my life. And when I finally died, I got really sad. Um, I even cried because he really was a significant man in my life, and he was almost like my uncle. I mean, it helped that he kind of looked like my uncle, but he was always the guy who you could go to to get an idea of what was out there, what was out in the world. I mean, the man introduced me to um, Horowski films, so that's a significant person in your life. And, um, Greg, I believe you had a uh, 
rather sad story about how you found out that Chaz died. Yes. Okay. I live in Bakersfield. Chaz lived in Westminster. So we were in California, and he would always make his annual trek to Yosemite National Park. And he'd always drive through his hometown of my hometown of Bakersfield, California. And he and his wife of many years, Pat Patrick, would say, Greg Goodsell lives here. Hmm, I feel the vibes. Well, last year, I finally was taking a Christmas trip, and I finally drove through the town of Westminster. You know, it's a very modern town, mostly office buildings and everything. And I knew Chaz's health was not good at that time. And I just knew deep down that he had passed. I was later notified by uh, Shane Remo Dahlman that he passed. But when I was driving through Westminster last year and where Chaz lived, I just knew in my heart of hearts he was no longer with us. Very sad. Yeah, it's a very sad story. Um, Because Chaz was always a presence, like I said earlier, that I could always go to to just find new things. He was a fan of anything, and he was always rating the new things, looking at them. Yeah, go ahead. I think Chaz will be best remembered for turning on young men who uh, was just do Nightmare on Elm Street, he'd be introducing them to Argento and Fulci and D'Amato and uh, Diodato and all these people. Now, Craig Ledbetter, who uh, put out European Trash Cinema, he did a very good job of getting obscure European tapes out to fans, but he mostly uh, communicated to people who was already into this stuff. And Chaz was very important in introducing people to, like, Italian films, foreign films, independent films. So I think that his, that's going to be his main contribution to uh, today's film community. Yeah, definitely. Um, we do have a caller from an 804 area code. Um, could you go ahead and identify yourself if you're on the air? I guess maybe they're not there. Caller okay. 804 area code, are you there? 804, looking for Roy. <laughs> Roy, are you there? Caller, you are on the air. 804 area code. Can you identify yourself? Well, <laughs> well this isn't working very well. <laughs> Not at all. Huh. Um, well, I'll jump in if it's okay. This is Steve Bissett. Yeah, go ahead, Steve. Um, you know, there's a lot of things Chaz did in his lifetime that um, the folks in the horror community aren't aware of. Um, before Chaz kicked off uh, the writing of, um, how shall I put it, um, uh, Lester Bangs-like uh, approaches to writing about horror cinema, Lester Bangs was his real hero, the rock critic. Uh, for Rolling Stone, who really shook up how to write about rock music. Lester Bangs was Chaz's um, hero in a lot of ways uh, in terms of his writing. But prior to Chaz self-publishing The Connoisseur's Guide to Contemporary Horror Film, which was the first of his self-published chapbooks on horror movies, that was in 1983, and then he followed it with the Gore score. 
1984. Chaz was doing a lot of comic book work. Uh, he was a very um, key member of the mini comics revolution of the 1970s. And uh, Chaz did some terrific stuff, uh, uh, mini comics with titles like Spaz, uh, A Day in the Life of Mr. Hostile, um, <laughs> uh, Mighty Spaz, and so on. And these were comics that Chaz wrote, drew, and uh, with his buddy George DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio's father, got them into print and was circulating them amongst the mini comics community. And this was, you know, late 1970s up to about 1982. And one of the ways Chaz and I first bonded uh, when we first established contact in the mid-80s is, you know, Chaz had seen my work on Swamp Thing, and I asked him why he didn't do more comics. And he said, dude, it's too much work, you know. <laughs> I do one illustration or one painting, and I get paid a few thousand dollars. I draw a comic, and it's like, you know, 40 to 200 illustrations, and I'm making peanuts. <laughs> um, and, you know, so that's a whole body of work that Chaz had done that most people in the horror community aren't even aware of. Never saw you know, haven't seen reprinted and so on and so forth. But that led to him self-publishing those first two chapbooks, uh, Connoisseur's Guide to the Contemporary Horror and the Gore Score. And that's what led to Deep Red. That was the beginning of the whole wave that uh, Chaz kicked off. Steve, I got a question for you. Yeah. You mentioned uh, many comics. Did Chaz have anything to do with the, uh, the publications of Bukowski's uh, Dirty Old Man um, little magazine he had going through the 70s? Because I know many comics had a, a slight involvement at the hand of getting uh, Bukowski Well, published. bear in mind the, the, the mini comic movement of the 70s was really um, uh, kicked into motion and propelled by a guy named Clay Geerties. Uh Clay Geerties was like the the evangelist of mini comics and uh the mini comics revolution came right as the underground comics uh scene of the late 60s and early 70s was beginning to to ebb and fade and uh Clay Geerties was the guy that really was the guru of that whole movement and I don't know specifically which minis Chaz would have had a hand in other than his own. Uh, it's possible he had something to do with the one that you named, but uh, uh, the sense I always got from Chaz, you know, whenever I would ask him about that, that, that phase of his work, he was very dismissive of it. But that's how Chaz was about everything. I mean, he was very self-effacing. <laughs> and if you, you know, if you tried to inflate his importance in any way, he would pop that balloon in a heartbeat. So... So more yeah, happy would um, be terribly happy with with all of us tonight, which we're we're sort of boasting on how great he was. So he might not have enjoyed this too much. That might be him calling in that won't <laughs> talk to us. You know, you never know. <laughs> it's a it's a strong possibility. Um, well, just at to, the um, same time. Oh, I'm sorry. May uh, May I interject here? Yeah, go ahead, man. Okay. Yeah, the thing you have to remember, you know. Chaz was a very was sort of like a 4AJ Ackerman character, and the funny thing that fandom works if you put anything out, you're instantly hated by people who don't know you. So like you know he had a lot of friends and people who loved him, but he had his fair share of detractors. And the oh yeah, I thought who did. Yeah, go ahead, Steve. 
No, no, uh, Greg, you you uh, you put your finger uh, right on it. Um, a lot of people were were turned off by Chaz's no no nonsense approach to writing about film, and uh, you know I've got a lot of mutual friends who uh, publish to this day um, very serious you know film magazines and genre film magazines that never really you know tuned into what Chaz was doing and. Um, never really embraced uh the kind of work that that um that Chaz always pioneered as being particularly relevant to serious appreciation of the horror film and that was kind of the whole point i mean Chaz he didn't shrug that off but at the same time you know he he would sometimes disparagingly remark i would turn in reviews and if they were a little too anal retentive you know he would he would uh he would tell me which magazine I should send it to. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Um, and uh, but, but you know, Chaz, I don't think Chaz was appreciated in in uh, in a lot of circles. Uh, he was controversial. He was yeah, very he, controversial. He was. Yep. And my association with Deep Red slammed a lot of doors in my face, as well as opened quite a few. So yeah, there were there were definitely two sides to Chaz Fallon. There were people who worshipped the ground he walked on, but he had some very active vocal detractors as well. So we need to remember that. Yes, yeah. At the same time, I think Chaz o- probably opened um, more doors for you know people that wanted to write about uh, the the films and the books they loved uh, than. You know, almost any editor that was, or, or or packager, I should say, that was working in the scene, you know, as early as 1985, 86, 87. And I think, Greg, you and I both sort of stepped into the deep red circle roughly the same time, you know, uh, 87, 88. Yeah, somewhere in there. Um, that made a world of difference to have somebody, especially a big-hearted uh, Viking of a man like Chaz, saying, yeah, come on in, join the parties, dude, you know. Um, and, I saved uh, all his letters. I saved all his letters, and he was always like, "Welcome aboard, dude." Yeah, yeah. He would only give you. Uh, he would only give filmmakers a boost. He would only uh, give writers and artists a boost if they were good. He did have high standards of quality. Well, and it had to be work that shook him up. And uh, you know, had an emotional impact on Chaz. If if it was tedious or or pretentious, uh, that was that. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it engaged him or it didn't. (laughs) Just to throw a question to um, everybody uh, out there right now is, what did uh, Chaz's like friendship mean to all of you? Just having him as a friend you could go to. Shall I begin? Yeah, go ahead, Greg. Okay, Chaz gave me a playground to play on. That was the important thing. I had a venue for my writings and what have you. And Chaz would cry on my shoulder at times, and I would cry on his shoulders at times. You know, but it was a healthy relationship. And uh, we supported each other through the years. And, you know, I always made a point of sending him get well cards when I heard he wasn't doing well. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, a very mutual long distance relationship. I would only see him in person at horror conventions, but we spoke on the phone extensively. 
so. Yeah, it was um, it was a mutually beneficial relationship. So. Yeah, I mean, for for me, I, I'm 55 now. Uh, Chaz and I were were uh, uh, close enough in age that right from the the moment we first made contact. You know, we were peers to one another. Um, Chaz and, and Pat were always um, just terrific friends. Whenever we got to have an opportunity to get together in the flesh, which happened all too rarely. I mean, I live in the East Coast. I'm talking to you all from the state of Vermont, where I live. And, and Chaz used to uh, endearingly refer to me as one of the hill people. Uh, but Chaz and Pat actually, you know, came out and paid a visit to me and my family, Um spent some time with us. Um, I, I got to see them at the Fantacons, which were held in Albany, New York. Uh, I think they were at the 1988 and 89 Fantacons. Um, I got to visit them at their home out in Westminster that, that Greg mentioned earlier. Um, that was a little disorienting. You'd, you know, you'd, uh, You'd walk in the door, Chaz would welcome you in the door, and uh, visible to you from the doorway would be uh, at least one of Chaz's uh, immense, gorgeous uh, paintings of an otter or, or, or another uh, animal. But also visible would be hanging on the wall uh, a K&B uh, prop of a decaying corpse. <laughs> Which must have really thrown some, you know, it, 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 when when the FBI showed up his, at his door trying to find out about what was happening with the guinea pig video, that must have been a little alarming to them to see from the door. Um, but Chaz loved his music. Uh, he loved Pat. Uh, they loved their dogs, their pets. Um, he was just an amazing guy. And, and I think for me and my relationship with uh, Chaz, um, the big thing for me is working as I as I did for 25 years in the comic books industry, I had a lot of friends that always thought whatever else I was into was a distraction, like I should be drawing Swamp Thing or I should just be working on comics or, or my friends who are novelists thought I should just be working on writing. And Chaz, Chaz's whole attitude about life is that you should be doing what you want to do <laughs> and you should be doing what makes you happy. And, and that made... Um, our dynamic and our friendship uh, grounded in something that was uh, pretty amazing. Uh, I, I really miss him. Uh, do you mind if I interject for a moment? Go ahead, Andy. Go ahead. Uh, one of our biggest uh, efforts on this show is we had tried to get in involvement with some of Charlie Sheen's PR people to send him a link to the show, and we're hoping that Charlie would call in. I would personally like to hear what he has to say about that. That, uh, you know, I, I read your, uh, your your post on this, Steve, and about, you know, did you watch the last 15 minutes of a movie? And I would really like to hear what, what Charlie uh, had to say about that. But I know, Greg, you had a story about this that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, sure. Okay, now, the one part of the story that isn't well known was Charlie Sheen got the guinea pig video from a – dead red, deep red writer who shall remain nameless. Mm, yeah. That's how it got into his hands. I won't mention the writer's name. He's no longer active. But somebody who used to write for Deep Red gave it to Charlie Sheen. And, you know, if you've seen The Flowers of Flesh and Blood, you know, it has editing. It has, you know, uh, 
it's uh, well thought out. It's not a single take of a person getting offed. Well, you know, it also I, had a making of video at the end of the tape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just even anybody coming onto this, you know, especially Charlie Sheen, who has worked in film. You know, he would see all the edits and all the lighting effects and the musical score. Why didn't a light bulb appear above his head? You know, it's just really asinine. <laughs> well, let's think poorly of Charlie Sheen for a moment. I'm sure we can figure out why exactly he uh, he didn't realize that. <laughs> there, there's always a good reason with Charlie. The connection, as it was described to me by Charlie, uh, by Chaz, not to confuse him with Charlie Sheen, by Chaz, uh, who, who, you know, went by Charlie to with many of his friends. Chaz um, uh, got involved when it was not the writer from Deep Red who had given the tape to Charlie Sheen. It was the writer from Deep Red who had passed the tape on to an editor of a famous uh, borderline underground film magazine who then, that fellow, that editor, was the one who passed the tape on to Charlie Sheen. And uh, because, and I know that because I got a call from that editor <laughs> in a panic attack and, um, you know, saying that I gave them Chaz's name. This is what the editor said to me. And I said, well, you know, why did you do that? I'm handed tapes by complete strangers at conventions all the time. You know, why didn't you just say you got it at a convention? Well, of course, he was scared because it was the FBI. Um, for Chaz, that was a big no-no because Chaz and I are of the generation. You don't narc on anybody, and, and I'm deliberately using the word narc here because we are of that generation and the counterculture where uh, weed and so on was a big part of it. And that's part of why it pissed Chaz Balanoff so much that, you know, nobody along the, the uh, chain of command ever just, you know, uh, said, I got it at a convention. As you all know, especially in the pre-DVD era, that's where most of us got to see the more outrageous films. So, okay, shall I mention the guilty parties? Up to you. Or is this giving it? Okay, I'll mention it. Chris Gore, a film threat. Exactly, it was Chris Gore, and Chris Gore was the one who actually called me at home, freaking out. I was a contributor to Film Threat at the time in its first uh, and second incarnation. Um, had written a couple of short articles and, and let Chris reprint my uh, cult story from Epic Number 6, and Chris was freaking out. He called me going, I can't believe it, the FBI is calling, you know. And, <laughs> oh, God. Uh, the thing is, is his film threat compilations were just uh, bootleg themselves. You know, he quoted, he had Dick Clark uh getting Johnny Rotten on American Bandstand, and he didn't ask for those rights. He just dubbed it off the TV and sold it. So he was bootlegging himself. Well, and, you know, let's face it, the whole DVD market we all take for granted today, a lot of the stuff out there wouldn't have been out there if it weren't for the fact that the gray market, which Chaz was also part of uh, boostering with magazines like Deep Red, that's the only way we could see a lot of these films. I, I I'm in the backwoods of Vermont. Let, let me tell you, it was hard to come by even cut versions of a lot of these films. I think what probably added to the fact was the, the edition that was floating around. It was in Japanese. Right. And we do have our preconceptions. This is ethnocentric to say, but we have a, a slightly skewed view of the Japanese mind. So maybe in the back of his mind, he said, oh, my God. 
Well, and, and I'd and, also like to point out the fact that uh, the last uh, Deep Red magazine that I contribute to, the one with the collage cover, Yep, I did an article on Asian horror films, and Charlie was up front with me. He found a lot of the Japanese horror films to be repulsive and irredeemable, which is, you know, he would uh, he would get behind the Italian gore meisters with their uh, vicious violence, but he found a lot of the, uh, especially a lot of the later stuff coming out of Japan, to be extremely repulsive and inhuman. So there well, was that side I mean, of Chaz Ballin as well. Chaz took a lot of heat uh, at one of the horror conventions he attended in the 90s where the, um, uh, Greg, what was the name of the Spanish, that short Spanish film that involved the... Uh, Aftermath? Oh, was, yes, yeah, Aftermath. Aftermath. And, you know, Chaz, I mean, like four of us started to say Aftermath all at the same time. Yeah, Chaz <laughs> did not think much of that movie. And, and because he voiced that, you know, openly at, at the panels um, uh, at the convention where they were showing that film and the director was there and so on, um, you know, some people took it as a, a, you know, Chaz flinching or something. But, um, you know, as Greg was saying, no, you know, Chaz's tastes were uh, pretty clear if you knew him and, and, and pretty refined in some ways. Um, he, you know, he, he, um, he didn't have much patience for the stuff that didn't interest him or that he simply found offensive without anything else to engage him. Yes, I think it's interesting, though, that he did promote In a Glass Cage. That was very edgy. That's an amazing movie, you know. It's I an mean, amazing in a glass cage film, is a... but yeah, it was an amazing film, but it was very edgy for Chaz to recommend this to some of his readership who would not react well to it. Well, I the thought same that was true. very gutsy. The same was true of, of films like Combat Shock, uh, you know, and, and Chaz completely embraced my tracking down Buddy Giovanazzo and interviewing Buddy for, you know, that was my first big piece in Deep Red. Um, you know, Chaz got be behind Jim Van Beber's films at a time when a lot of people had no no interest at all in Van Beber's uh, work. Um, and and so, yeah, yeah, I mean, Chaz, is, Chaz was, was, was uh, promoting a lot of films that people did find objectionable. Um, point taken, Greg. The one director that Chaz did not like, I thought was interesting, he did not like David Lynch. Oh, no. He just found him too pretentious. Well, he didn't like Tim Burton either. Um, oh, yes, he hated Tim Burton, and he didn't, he didn't care for David Lynch. Yeah, yeah. Chaz and I would bump heads on that kind of stuff. You know, um, uh, I remember once I, I wanted to do something about um, – um, you know, Igmar Bergman's Hour of the Wolf and, and some of those sort of borderline art horror films. And Chaz just, you know, this is literally what he said. Fuck that, Bissette, that artsy fartsy shit. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, I'll do something else, Chaz. <laughs> that is a great imitation. Even the halt in the voice there it was perfect. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chaz was, Bowen, yeah. to me, sounded just like Tommy Chong from Cheech and Chong. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Uh, which actually, what you're talking about, brought me to a, another question: Is um, what were some movies that you guys uh, disagree with Chaz on? Because I would disagree with him on the Night Loon Death remake and Naked Lunch. Um, he hated Naked Lunch apparently, but I, I kind of enjoyed Naked Lunch the movie. 
So anything you disagreed with him on, like film? Oh yeah, I disagreed violently. Blue Velvet. He just found that just too uh, removed. Well, yeah, you know, as as Greg says, a lot of stuff. You know, David Cronenberg. Some of it he liked. Some of it he had no interest in. Uh, David Lynch. You know, uh, Chaz had no interest in. Those are all filmmakers. I love. I I will go see anything that they make. And uh, you know, Chaz and I disagreed about stuff all the time, but we had a lot of common ground as well. But yeah, there were a lot, a lot of films that uh, that we would disagree on. Um, I was interested early on. It was really hard to find them. Uh, I was interested in tracking down more about uh, the pink movies out of Japan. Those those borderline uh, sex horror films from the '60s. Now they're a lot of them are readily accessible uh, on DVD, but at the time they were almost impossible to see. And you know, Chaz just wasn't interested. Uh, that stuff didn't just didn't interest him. It, it it wasn't on his wavelength at all. And and uh, um, so there was a lot of stuff we disagreed about. Um, he didn't he didn't love Gorgo as much as I love Gorgo, but he did love Ring of Bright Water, so we were okay on that. Yeah, uh, it was important to note. Though, you know, I would write rave reviews of films that Chaz hated, and he would publish them. Yes, yes, exactly. So that was yeah. an important factor. He would disagree, but he saw validity in anyone's viewpoint. So that that was the, uh, a positive plus. He would uh, run good reviews of films he enjoy- he hated, so – but uh, I do have a question that I'm not I'm not sure how uh, comfortable everyone is talking about this. But before we get too far off of uh, the the FBI incident, I wanted to bring up that uh, you know uh, I don't know how to word it. Um, not uh, I, I want to word it discreetly. So I guess Chaz selling movies would be the best way I can uh, phrase this. That you know, does anyone have anything to speak about about Chaz selling films? The thing you have to remember, the world of 1987 is not the same as 2011. If you want to see a movie right now, you can just go over to the computer in the corner and get a torrent. You know, and if you want if you are desperate to see a film, you'll do what it took to see it back in the 80s. And now Chaz may have stepped on a few toes here and there. But I've talked to other filmmakers, and they're just really glad that I did see them on bootlegs where they didn't make 25 cents off them. They're just excited that people went out of their way to see the movies. And if someone along the way made 20 bucks, 15 bucks, or did a trade, you know, too bad. That's my uh, actually- take on it. Actually, I was at the Fanticon that in Albany that Dario Argento and, and Chaz and Pat Ballin are at. Dario Argento was overjoyed that anybody in America could see his films in their uncut form in any way, shape, or form. Uh, there's Dario and one of his producers as guests at the show, and they were happy that Chaz had been <laughs> circulating his movies. That Dario's movies were available in America from a number of labels, but they were all cut. It was almost impossible to legally see. Um, uh, God, Greg, correct me. I think there were only two of Dario's films that were available complete in 1988 here in America. Yes, Cecilia and um, Opera were the only Yeah, well, two. that's it. And it, well, no, actually, opera wasn't even available at that time. Uh, opera was coming in via bootleg in 1987-88. So, in some cases, the filmmakers themselves—I mean, I got to spend two days with Alejandro Jodorowsky um, and uh, Claudio Argento, Dario Argento's uh, brother, producer, 
And um, Alejandro was also very happy that um, El Topo and Holy Mountain were circulating in the bootleg market because at the time it was impossible to see them. They were out of release. Uh, the proprietor of those uh, licenses in North America had buried them on purpose, and how Alejandro cheered on the gray market. Um, I know there were filmmakers that did not feel that way, but there was a fair amount of, you know, a, a lot of the key filmmakers understood they only were known to the fan community in North America because of the gray market, the video bootleg market, getting their work out there. I also want to stress, too, you know, you raise a good point, but Chaz was not one of those guys that was uh, set up at a convention with an entire table full of bootleg tapes, and that's all he was doing. Uh, Chaz usually traded tapes with people. Um, you know, he, he did not set up a business that was the equivalent of some of the uh, – gray market uh, video um, uh, businesses that existed at the time. He was primarily selling his books and his art and his work. So just keep it in that yeah, context. That's, it's the reason that, like, um, I know what I know is because I was one of Chaz's gray market people, and I got to see all those Argento films. My entire Argento collection was Chaz's Argento collection, his Fulci collection. I actually got – to see these things that I could not find anywhere else because of situations of where I live and whatnot. But that's the thing that I found so amazing about Chaz was that he inspired a person out in the middle of nowhere to get involved in something like film and be interested in something other than horror films as well, because it wasn't all horror films with Chaz. It was Cult films. I mean, Horowski's not a horror director, but yet he inspired me to um, get into films like Horowski films. So oh, yeah. that's the biggest influence that I find. That's why Chaz's um, my relationship with Chaz over the years meant so much to me because, like I said, it's like an uncle who is letting you know about things in the world that exist, and there are things in the world that exist that you are interested in. Also, bear in mind, Chaz was part of a community. I mean, it's not just Chaz that was circulating and promoting these films. You had, I mean, Greg mentioned Craig Ledbetter earlier. Craig with ETC, Euro Trash Cinema Magazine. Craig was in, incredibly important in getting this work out there. And Craig would track down movies Chaz couldn't find and vice versa. When I wrote that um, short history of cannibal films that Chaz published in the Deep Red Horror Handbook, um, Chaz, Craig Ledbetter, Tim Lucas with Video Watchdog, um, Luca, Lucas Balbo in Europe. I mean, all these people were helping get video copies of, at that time, incredibly obscure and hard-to-see films into my hands because they knew I was working on that piece, and they, they knew, as with all of us, it was a labor of love. I wanted to see this stuff, and, and there, it, this was the only way I was going to see it. So, you know, Chaz was very much part of um, a larger community where this was part of our mode of communication and contact. That's also how most of us saw street trash. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the, uh, uh, the film that Roy Frumkus scripted and produced, uh, Chaz was a huge proponent of street trash. The only way to see it is if you lived in Los Angeles uh, San Francisco or New York when it first opened. It was a midnight movie when there were still midnight movies. 
that only got seen and and uh, and built a following because of the gray market. Uh, that said, Chaz would also step, you know, away from uh, bootlegging stuff as soon as it was legally available because it was out there at that point. But all those markets, just like the anime market, were primed by decades of gray market video. Oh, yeah. Although he was a very important part in everyone's education. Yeah. Although, Steve and Greg, I am wondering, what was the situation with Necromantic? Oh, God, Necromantic. Greg? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, shall we open up this can of worms? Let's go. Like Chris Gore couldn't. You know, okay, the Chris Gore education. story. All right. Now, well, Chris Gore had a cow over Flowers of Flesh and Blood. And he wrote nice apologetic uh, articles. Oh, it was all a misunderstanding. And then uh, Chris Gore just got a bug up his ass. And this, if this gets back to him, I will uh, call him on it. He just got a bug up his ass. Because uh, Chaz was uh, distributing Necromantic uh, by Jorge Bucharit. Right. And he wrote this big, long, bashing editorial with Charlie's picture in the middle. His fat ass is profiting off of Jorge Bucharit's stuff and blah, 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 blah. Film Threat had its uh, eyes on Necromantic. The funny thing is, when me and Chris Gore were still talking... The films that uh, Film Threat would offer, like the uh, Cinema of Transgression movies from R. Kern. You remember those? Oh, yes. Yes. He had had no respect for R. Kern. He knew he was getting an audience. In fact, he told me one time, I haven't been keeping up with R. Kern's career like he had one to begin with. So uh, Chris Gore himself didn't believe in the films that he was pimping in Film Threat. Well, after that article came out in Film Threat, uh, Chris Gore shows up at the 1992 Fangoria Horror Convention. And I spot him in the crowd. I run and get Chaz Bow. I said, Chaz, Chaz, Chris Gore is here. Chris Gore is here. And he runs up to Chris Gore. And as we say, you know, Chaz Bow is about seven feet tall, 400 pounds, mostly muscle. And yeah, Chris Gore looks about like, five foot tall. Chaz pounds. looks like one of the characters in Richard Fleischer's The Vikings. We we kid you not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just picked up Chris Gore by the shoulders. God damn it, you little cocksucker! You've been spreading all this shit about me. Blah blah blah. blah. And Chris Gore's going, "Take me to court! Take me to court! Take me to court!" It was a night to remember. Fear <laughs> flying everywhere. You know, he had a stormy face off with Chris Gore, but this. Came two inches away from killing him, but you know that was it. That was pretty funny. It was funny to see because this war had been ongoing. So, All right, we have a we actually have a caller right now. Two and two area code. Yeah, <laughs> you, I, you're on the air. <laughs> oh, is that what I am? Okay, I've just been listening. I didn't understand the protocol here. Uh, I oh, just noticed now. Roy, I'm sorry, Roy. This sounds like Roy. <laughs> It, it is yes, Roy. Is Mr. Roy I'm sorry, I just now noticed that I had a caller, so apologize my ignorance, Roy. Not, no problem. I've really been enjoying listening to this. I remember <laughs> being part it. of this long ago. <laughs> Roy, um, what do you got to say about uh, Chaz and uh, what we've been talking about tonight, Ben? 
Well, I, as I say, a long time ago, I remember somebody calling me, and, and I, honest to God, I don't remember who it was, uh, trying to incite me to get involved in a lawsuit against him for selling bootleg uh, prints of movies, and I refused, you know, and, and I, uh, I said, I, I get it, you know, and you, there may be some validity to it, but the guy kind of crystallized my image in the, in the, in the genre, you know, I mean, that issue with a magazine of Deep Red that he pretty much devoted to Document of the Dead and Street Trash was, was a real generous, wonderful thing. And, uh, you know, just I, there was no way I was going to do anything negative towards him. So I just backed off from that. Uh, he was a very passionate, articulate guy. He had a wonderful way of, of being totally unexpurgated in his writing and yet very eloquent. And I think that magazine was, one of, you know, like the, really one of the key elements in, in, in the I guess the development of the genres, right? Wouldn't you say, everybody? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I think we'd all agree. Yeah. Um, I don't have too much to add, you know. I mean, I, I've met I met him, you know, and I'd spoken with him, and but but I didn't really get close to him. I didn't. We didn't cross paths that often. Oh, we're just glad to have you on the show, Roy, so you can have your uh, your say and what well, has um, meant to you in your life. Yeah, no, it's nice to hear everybody talking about him so glowingly, you know, and, and to put uh, a lot of those issues in perspective. Um, my, Roy, uh, this is Steve Bissett. You and I met when you were shooting the additional footage for one of the revisions of uh, Document of the Dead. You invited me and Gan Wilson and, and Joe Kane to be part of that. Um, well, there's a new uh, installment getting ready to come out called The Definitive Document of the Dead, and you made the cut. You're still in there. Oh, thank you, Roy. Thank You're you, welcome. Roy. I'm sorry to say the Phantom didn't make it. I feel very bad about that because he's an old friend, but, but you're in there. Wow. Thank you. I feel honored. Um, the reason I bring that up is I wanted to mention that um, uh, Chaz was a huge, huge, huge fan of Street Trash. And, um, you know, your work on that, Jim Morrow's work. Yeah. And that was Jim's only film as a director, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And, you know, Chaz would always, I mean, when he loved a movie, he he really uh, became like an evangelist for it. And, right. Uh, well said. Um, you know, he he made sure that people knew when it was playing, where it was available, and once it was legally available, um, because it did finally get a proper video release. Um, mm -hmm. uh, even then, I seem to remember there was an uncut version that was circulating around or a director's cut version that was circulating around. It was just um, – that was one of the cases where um, knowing – you a little bit from that document of dead shoot and also seeing as Chaz's friend, how passionately he was pushing that movie. And there, there you know, that, that was, that was interesting. That I, that was, it was sort of a long distance relationship, as you say, Yeah, <laughs> but, but it was genuine. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, uh, Vestron, uh, I guess, you know, lightning, a wing of Vestron picked up that's right. street trash for the United States. And they, and they paid us a half a million dollars just for the U S rights they wanted to cut 10 minutes out of it, and it just wasn't something Jimmy and I could say no to since they were forking out that amount of money. Um, they weren't; they certainly weren't cutting the negative, you know, and we, we always had the right at some future date to put out the uncut version. I, I think Chaz beat us to it, but that's okay, you know. Hey, I still, I still bought the legal release when it was uncut, so. Yeah, yeah. I have the DVD, so. 
I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, I, I bought the legal DVD with the uh, the documentary about uh, Street Trash on. It's a very enjoyable documentary. You get really in depth with the uh, all the cast members that are still around and all the people who worked on it. Well, don't mind me interviewing you for a minute, Roy. Was wasn't Chaz the first guy to spill the beans on tapes that will tear your heart out? Probably. I think you're probably right. I was actually I was actually before I called I was looking around for that issue, but but I, I my place is pretty. Um, Whenever somebody licenses some some material for me, like the last house on the left stuff, they always refer to the Roy Frumkus archives. They're, they're talking just about my apartment, which is piled high with junk. It's not really an archive. So I, I was searching through it, trying to get that issue, and, and I wasn't able to get it in time, and, and I had the call. I, I think he discussed tales also. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, I've got it in front of me. Uh, oh, we, we we touched on it in the Deep Red Horror Handbook. Uh-huh. Um, and I remember that was the first time I ever spoke to you, Roy, was um, it was actually um, Lloyd Kaufman at Troma that mentioned to either me or Chaz about tales that will tear your hair, heart out. And he mm. thought it was Wes Craven that was um, involved with it, which you later, you know, once Chaz and I had tracked you down, you said, yeah, Wes was involved. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, it's mentioned in the Deep Red Horror Handbook in the, the Cannibal Film uh, Overview. And then Chaz put together more material, and I think you actually sent him a photo or two from either the film or he, or he got an image from Dr. Bookcher, M.D., from that sequence. So. Uh, yes. Uh, well, those were beautiful stills of Wes. I mean, he's not actually in the film, but we were doing the makeup. He got excited, and he asked if the guy could put it on him as well and we were shooting near um kind of a uh, 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 we were on the grounds of a um of a mental institution uh, in these kind of access tunnels it was very creepy and, and atmospheric and so he went out with the photographer and posed for some shots and i guess that's what you're looking at didn't you tell me and, and i think this was in the deep red article that it was uh, an Ed Sullivan uh, riff, the the big shoe or something like that. That that's what that episode was going to be. Um, that was that was the only episode that was completed. It was called Big Shoe, and it was about Ed Sullivan's corpse getting up and coming back to the theater <laughs> to, to do a final monologue. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, um, none of the even Wes's wasn't really finished. I mean, he kind of did a what he considered a fine cut, and then he abandoned it. You know, we got, we ran out of money halfway through that film. So everybody except me got to shoot their stuff, and only Ted Bonnet got to finish his, and that was Big Shoe. Yeah. Wow. And so, you know, they, Synapse, you know, who's released five of my films, they keep kind of nudging me to, to do a documentary about uh, Tales That'll Tear Your Heart Out, something that'll kind of contain all the unfinished stuff but give it some kind of structure. I don't know if that's a great idea, but <laughs> <laughs> but they want you to do it. Yeah. yeah, little pieces of it have appeared in, as you say, in other on other DVDs over the years. Well, if it's any consolation, Roy, I'll probably buy it. So, oh, okay. One are adult. <laughs> All right. Well, okay, that motivates me. Maybe I'll get to that. <laughs> Although Roy, I do hate to ask, are there any further outtakes from Last House on the Left? I really, I really think I've exhausted that. I, I that that last batch that I dug up the porn stuff. 
That was I, I had really forgotten that that was there. Um, Wait a second. Um, was this stuff on the MGM game? Uh, it was um, the most recent release. The one in Britain? It might have been the one in Britain. I, I produced the – but it might have been MGM. What I, what I came up with was uh, Wes's copy of the script and about five minutes of um, um, almost hardcore stuff. Yeah, I think that I, I just bought that British uh, three-disc edition that came out like a month or two ago, uh -huh. and it was in there. So I, I don't know if it's been made available in the U.S. yet. Huh. The um, the script was really revealing because it's just it's just filled with Wes's notes and uh, it's very strong stuff. Did wow. they ever show the rat scene that was supposed to be in that film? Well, I don't know. I you know the the. The way I got the footage was uh, I had I'd gone to, I'd seen it playing on you know in New York and I I thought it was terrific and I thought it was you know I, it was clearly someone's first film was clearly shot in 16 millimeters so I took the name of the distributor and I just sent Wes off a, a note you know uh, congratulating him and two weeks later this box arrived with all the outtakes all the scripts and he and he said if you like it so much you can say you know you can archive it he said they they spit at me at the screening my own crew you know i it, i didn't put it on my resume i'm ashamed of it and it's funny so then when when i um i guess it was a guy named dave shulkin got a hold of me uh and this was several years ago for, for shulkin first, and i are good friends for the first um dvd i guess you know director's cut release of it and he said could we could i use some of those outtakes and after the disc came out uh, i get the phone rings and it's wes you know calling he said he said i don't believe you bothered saving that shit all these years <laughs> you could not believe it but <laughs> so you know it really it extols the virtues of being a pack rat you know god bless you <laughs> Well, then I, yeah. I guess I can add something to this that Chaz would have been happy about. When when um, Wes and I tried to make a director's cut of Last House, and this was a kind of a revised director's cut, we, there was a print, a very long print, 35 millimeter, up on a shelf in, um, what's his name's closet, the guy that uh, produced it. Um, oh, Sean Cunningham. Sean Cunningham's closet. We pulled it down, and I... I said, Wes, the, the, the version that's out there is just so, you know, it's like R-rated. I said, why don't you fiddle with this and add stuff back in that, that you would have? And uh, he he added in some of the gore, you know, but he there was a lot more stuff with the sheriff and the deputy, and he didn't add any of that in. I mean, obviously, he wasn't that crazy about it either. Mm. So, so, I mean, it, you know, I remember that very clearly. I also remember one winter... Pretty long ago, I was downtown near the West Village, and there was a, a Santa Claus standing there, like, ringing a bell. And I went up, and I recognized him, and it was the guy that played the sheriff. I guess his name was Marshall Anchor. Yeah. And I introduced myself, and uh, I took him into McDonald's, and we sat down, and I bought him um, some coffee. And I said, uh, you know, what do you think about Last House after all these years? And he, and he looked at me very seriously, and he said, I think I was the best thing in it. <laughs> well, you know, Jeremy Rain, who plays the female, was married to uh, 
Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, yeah. Richard Dreyfus at one point, and it's just very odd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a very crude film with bad lighting, and it's rather artless. You can't say that about Texas Chainsaw, which is very well thought out and artful. I agree. Yeah. It's, but it's not artful. Following that with Street Trash, i got to ask. Um, apparently, Chaz was a, a big fan of Last House on Dead End Street. Oh yeah. So how could he? How could he not like on the uh, last house on the left? But what's the difference? I, I'd like to hear from, from I, you guys. There's what, a what's big the difference. difference. In the film? Last house on Dead End Street is just uncut nihilism. There's no good guys whatsoever. It's very single-minded. You don't feel uh, any sympathy for anyone in that film. The victims are just as vile as the killers. And it's very surreal, and it just bangs you over the head. You don't have them going into comedy relief where you get to know uh, anybody's relationship with anyone. It's just uncut nihilism. Hmm. That's a wonderful answer. (laughs) (laughs) That's a truly wonderful answer. (laughs) That's that's more than I could ever have thought about that film. It's Cobra Venom. (laughs) The lack of nothing in that film I like, but I... That what what always bothered me is not understanding what Chaz liked about it, why he did the commentary track, why he enjoyed it so much. But that makes sense because it is there is a massive difference when you bring forward the uh, the lack of of any anything in that film. That there is nothing whatsoever. There's just violence, but it's, it's not violence abyss. for violence' sake. <laughs> yeah. It's the abyss yeah, Frederick you know. Nietzsche warned us against. <laughs> well, it, if I may. Uh, I'm the missing link in that chain. Uh, an old friend of mine from the Kubert School, the cartooning school I went to, uh, was best friends with a young aspiring filmmaker named Rick Fernandez. Uh, Rick Fernandez provided some of the raw footage that finally ended up on the Barrel Entertainment uh, uh, DVD release of Last House on Dead End Street. Rick Fernandez showed up at a uh, 1983 a uh, small New York City comic book convention that Fred Greenberg was holding on, like, the 10th floor of, of some hotel in downtown Manhattan and brought with him uh, the director of The Last House on Dead End Street, which no one had heard of. I had never heard of it at that point. And Rick introduced me to Roger. And um, years later, when Chaz brought up that he had, that he had you know, tracked down this amazing movie, um, I remembered that, wait a minute, I met that guy at a comic book convention, and I tracked down my friend Rick Fernandez, and he said, yeah, that's Roger Watkins. Um, and um, and Chaz, you know, ran with it from there. Um, but it was, ju- it was literally, you know, dumb luck of, of my buddy Rick Fernandez, you know, showing up at this comic book convention where I was selling Swamp Thing pages and introducing me to this filmmaker who was very soft-spoken, didn't really want to talk about his movies because he had, uh, you know, Rick told me, oh, he, he's doing some, you know, triple X porn. Um, in 1983, nobody cared about, you know, that, that kind of fare was still pretty much looked down on. Um, you had, you know, you had uh, Sleazoid Express that was Bill Landis that was writing about those kind of films at that time. Bill Landis uh, went in 2008, the time Chaz did. And Bill Landis was a very important figure in my life because he encouraged my initial writings in film. I would have to say 
Bill Landis with all of his issues was a bigger influence than Chaz was because if it wasn't for Bill, I don't think I would have written for film, you know, or gotten involved in fanzines. So I have to give him the props. Yeah. Uh, Bill was amazing. Uh, he and I were, you know, uh, communicated through the mail. I subscribed to Sleazoid Express right from the beginning. Um, and Bill's work on Sleazoid predated, you know, the stuff that Chaz was doing on uh, Deep Red. And that includes organizing film festivals in New York City, uh, cir you know, circulating uh, videos and so on. And who was it that did Gore Gazette, Greg? Rick Sullivan? Rick Sullivan. Yes, right. Rick Sullivan was part of that generation just before Chaz. Bill Landis, Rick Sullivan, um, uh, there were a handful of them. Uh, Trashola was another one of the, the fanzines I used to subscribe to. Um, it was my work in Subhuman that Cecil Doyle put out, that Chaz became acquainted with my writing. And uh, he wrote a good review of Subhuman and Deep Red Number 2, and I introduced myself and said, hi, I write for Subhuman. Would you like me to write for you? And he said, welcome aboard, bro. So that was a stepping stone to Deep Red, was the Xerox fan seems like Subhuman. The thing is, is uh, Chaz would venture out, and he would like champion stuff like in a glass cage. Towards the end, Bill Landis just wrote about S&M pornography, mostly. He gotten into a rut, and he would just discuss, you know, out of context kink scenes and stuff. He did excellent work. He did really good work for film comment, but I do believe he got in a rut that way. Well, I think uh, I think the thing we have to remember is that none of these people were making uh, much money at all doing any of this stuff. Um, right, it was their passion. Well, yeah, I mean, Chaz's bread and butter were commercial art jobs, uh, commission paintings, uh, illustration work, the rotten cotton T-shirts, uh, you know, over the last decade and a half or more. Um, the stuff that we're all, you know, spouting uh, so affectionately, for, uh, so much affection for and very genuine affection was not earning Chaz and Pat's uh, bread and butter. Um, even when Chaz uh, had the good fortune to hook up with Fanico Enterprises, you know, Fanico was a, a, a publishing um, uh, experiment that grew out of uh, a longstanding comic and magazine shop in downtown Albany, New York. And Tom Schoolin, who I'm still good friends with, you know, Tom was playing it very close to the cuff, not out of greed, but because the market was not particularly supportive of any of this stuff. Deep Red Magazine never had high print runs. Um, and these guys that we're talking about, including Bill Landis, Rick Sullivan, I mean, you know, Rick Sullivan was printing Gore Gazette after hours at the place he worked, and I think actually lost his job over that. Someone else can correct me on that. I have a that. similar story. When I was typesetting all of Charlie's books, uh, I was doing it off the, cuff, off the cuff at work, and eventually they fired me. And oh. one of the main things that uh, they denied me unemployment for was that I was typesetting Charlie's books. So they denied me unemployment on account of that and the fact that I was three hours late to work every day. So, yes, I paid my dues for Deep Red. You know, I took a tumble. You know, I was punished for my good time, quote, unquote. There you go. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I was typesetting his books at work because my bo my boss at that time was never in the office. 
and he got someone to work cheaper. And he just uh, pulled all the galleys I had done for the Deep Red book, and he threw it in front of the labor board, and they denied me my unemployment on that account, basically. Oh. Well, there you are, ladies and gentlemen. The risk of fanzine work when, when we, you know, when it when it was uh, when there were no blogs out there. So, yeah, I, I yeah. Uh, shed blood for Deepred in that regard. And I'm sure, and I'm sure Charlie was mortified over that. I'm sure he was completely mortified over what had happened. Well, uh, at that tent, at that time, towards '93, he had lost some steam. I think uh, the book he did with Opera on the cover, The Deep Red, with the girl with the needle from Opera, Yes, that reportedly didn't sell at all, from what I understood. And then he came up, he propositioned me with these low press run uh, booklets. Yep, and And that was the Deep Red Alert, correct? Deep Red Alert and Connoisseur's Guide to Horror Film, those little pamphlets I did for him that I did. Yeah, but those uh, didn't really uh, paint a lot or, you know, in fandom, the thing about fandom you have to remember is you have lifelong friends and mortal enemies just through email or through the mail. That has happened to me several times. You develop these working relationships and some people will shank you and your mortal enemies, you'll demonize them or you'll have these long lost friends that you've never met. Right. <clears throat> uh, do I speak for everyone's experience here? Or? No, you're making me feel bad, like I've missed out on something. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I want some mortal enemies. <laughs> Life's really boring over here. <laughs> The other thing I'd like to bring up that we haven't mentioned yet is Charlie also wrote fiction. Uh, he put out, you know, a number of uh, self-published um, uh, fiction Ninth pieces. Hell Director's Cut, Ninth and Hell Street. Did you work on those, Greg? I didn't typeset any of his fiction. Uh, Chunk Blower, the one where uh, the guy is, yeah, in the With basement. The- yeah, I he was. We were going to do that, but stuff fell through. So yep. I didn't type that, that in as fiction. I believe I bought so. a screenplay from Chaz of Chunk Blower. It was a uh, more giallo, not the uh, tow truck driver preview, but it was more of a like a giallo inspired film that he had written. Um yep. I still have it around here somewhere. Uh, Butcher's Pride. Well, he actually self-published a uh, a chapbook of a short story version of. Uh, Butcher's Pride, and that was from 1989. I've got my little stack of uh, of jazz books here in front of me, so that I can grab some of these things. So, um, but you know that that's that was another aspect of of the stuff Charlie loved to do. I remember him being very frustrated with the attempt to get any of it either published through outside publishers or in the case of the screenplay you just mentioned, you know, having it eventually bear fruit as a film. Um, but he gave it his all. You know, he certainly, when those opportunities presented himself or when, when he had something he wanted to get out there, he would get it out there. Chaz would get it out there. But toward, Greg mentioned earlier that he was sort of running out of steam, and that's true. Toward the end, the, the, his experience with Phantasma books was not a happy experience. Um, what was it? The... Um, uh, beyond the horror holocaust, um, you know, I, I think Chaz had 
two, maybe three books that um, just were really rough rides, and one of them never came out. I believe the manuscript and the photos and so on are still with whoever the, the publisher was. One thing about fandom, and this was probably true for Chaz as it was for me, is, you know, we would have friends and enemies, but we would have certain type of friends who would suck up to us and say, oh, I love your work. Oh, you're so wonderful. Oh, you're, you're the reason I exist, blah, 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 blah. Can you give this to me for free? Hmm. You would encounter a lot of that. And hmm. one gentleman who lived far away, he would send me all these gushing letters about how wonderful I was. You know, he would appear in Los Angeles. You know, he'd be in Los Angeles for a week, and he'd set up a meeting, and he would, like, go around and turn around and stand me up about three or four times in a row. So, you know, if Chaz grew disenchanted, I think it was because of certain types of fans who liked him. Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of sycophants out there who say, oh, you're wonderful, you're wonderful, you're wonderful. Can I have this for free? Or can you do this for me for free? You know, so there was that side of the coin as well. Yeah, and he also, he was getting really, I mean, he went through, well, all of us do <laughs> at the ages some of us are at. He went through phases where he was just like, you know, why am I wasting time? Look at these crap movies that are coming out right now. And, and you know, that that would last until something popped up that really excited Chaz. And, and then it would rekindle the fire. Um, but you're right. I mean, Greg, there's, a, you know, there's a lot of users out there. And, and, you know, Roy, you know it better than any of us in the film business. Um, and, you know, Chaz had his brushes with those. So. Mm. So, yeah, he would have his enemies, but then there would be the fans and supporters who would uh, use up as much energy as his enemies would. So, yeah, I faced that, and I, I grew disenchanted. For most of the 90s, I didn't write any film-related articles. So, yeah, I got burnt out quickly. So, yeah, it was also the best of us. We should also address the issue that at a certain point when there was a generational shift, when the next generation of readers came in, um, you know, Chaz's voice, Chaz's voice got co-opted. You suddenly had people that were huh. writing for magazines like Rue Morgue, where it was all the attitude and, um, you know, tenor of Chaz's work and, and, uh, and, you know, and yet those same magazines, Rue Morgue included, didn't really have the time of day for someone like Charlie uh, to actually employ him or, you know, <laughs> make him a regular part of the magazine. And that that really wore on on uh, on Chaz as well, as it does anyone yes, who find themselves in that. Especially the female editor of Rue Morgue, who always spoke praisingly of Deep Red, but I never saw Charlie there or any entreaties to Charlie for that for him to write for them. So. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, that stings. I've been there as well. That is a very stinging raw wound for a lot of writers. Oh boy. <laughs> I didn't mean to bring us all down by going there, but that's it's a real part syndrome. of Chaz though. That was it. I think he would want us to be truthful. Oh yes. And oh, not yes. all glowing yeah. and, you know, bear hugs and backpats. But yeah, this this was Charlie. I saw Charlie in some very dark moods. You know, uh, he was gregarious and uh, friendly and avuncular, but I did see the dark side of Chaz on more than one occasion. And it oh, wasn't yeah. just Chris Gore. Same here. I mean, Charlie and I often commiserated when uh, 
you know, we, we would find ourselves in, in similar uh, uh, troughs career-wise where, you know, suddenly you can't get the time of day from people that, you know, were, were uh, um, hitting you up for free work or attention earlier on. And, yeah, that's, and it's a very real part of, of what we do. Yeah, I'm glad that we spoke on this because this is a very important part of the equation. You know, there are a lot of people who uh, praise Chaz and Deep Red and stuff, but yeah, it was very hard for him to uh, find a venue for his talents. Yeah. So this this is the fate of a lot of writers, unfortunately. And so yeah, we needed to include this as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I was pretty friendly with George Pal, and, and toward the end of his career, people like Spielberg and Lucas were saying how much he influenced them, but nobody was helping them. Exactly. Exactly. You know? I mean, that's how I feel about George Romero. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. I, I, some of the stuff I, I hear these days about George's films, and it would have been, I would have loved to have had conversations with, with Chaz about Survival of the Dead. <laughs> to see where he was at. <laughs> I, I, I feel like any film I get to see by Romero right now is a gift. And I'm very frustrated as uh, someone who, you know, loves reading, watching, you know, all aspects of, of the genre that for, God, almost two decades, you know, um, George spent much of his career spinning wheels trying to get projects off the ground. Yeah. If that's happening to the man who made Night of the Living Dead, you can just project and imagine what it was like for Chaz Valen in trying to get any, I mean, most of his work is self-published other than that large body of work that went through Fantico. And that speaks volumes in and of itself. It wasn't that Chaz was per se uh, an evangelist for self-publishing. It's that that was the last resort. You know, it's like if there was no other way to get it out, he would get it out on his own. But that wasn't always uh, by choice. That was by necessity. And I think so Chaz would have liked it that way. I, I think, uh, you know, he was a self-made man in many respects, Yeah, in a way. So, oh, yeah. Well, uh, it's yeah. also the nature of the business. You go back to what Roy just said about George Powell. I mean, George Powell is the man who, who made, uh, you know, War of the Worlds, the time machine. And, and when the fans of those films grow up to become George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, you know, why aren't they able to bankroll or, or set up some um, uh, vanity <laughs> uh, imprint yeah. or something to allow those people to work? If Look at how much money has been poured into the production of just remakes of older George Romero films, most of which at the time they came out were poorly reviewed and not particularly well-loved when they first came out. They had their followings. Those, some of us, some of us talking in this conversation now among them, but um, uh, you know George has never had the budget that was lavished on the remake of The Crazies or you know the remake of Dawn of the Dead, and I, I don't understand the disconnect of a studio system that doesn't go. This guy is still alive. We're making millions and investing multi millions into remakes. Why don't we set up so he can make one film a year like Woody Allen does? Because after he's gone, we'll, we can still remake whatever he just did last year. <laughs> that seems to me a more viable economic model than what we have today. So Another thing about the artist, and this was probably true with Chaz, is that uh, you become popular and well-liked for doing one thing, and yeah. then you venture forward and do something different. 
you're hotly rejected and say, this isn't like your other stuff. We'll do the other stuff. You'll you'll turn to resent your successes more than you will be ashamed of your failures. Like L. Frank Baum, he wanted to get away from writing about The Wizard of Oz, but that's Hmm. all the publishers were interested in. Yeah. So there's that side of the coin. You can be really successful, and it can be just as bad as being successful. You know, I was on the set, and uh, and I, I said, George, this looks like a Western. He said, yeah, I, I was in the mood to do one. I, I just had to put a few zombies in it. And I, said, I, I, what, I, yeah. I loved Survival of the Dead. Um, I, I really in, enjoyed the film before that as well. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I... I uh, I don't necessarily have to love every film from a given filmmaker, but there are certain storytellers that if they've got a story to tell, I'm happy to sit down and drink it in. And the work, some works will last and some won't. I was far more entertained by Survival of the Dead than I would say eight out of ten of the movies I saw at theaters last year. And I didn't get to see Survival of the Dead in a theater. Hmm. Um, oh, well. I, you know, I understand I'm a geezer in this in this conversation, but uh, um, I, I had a great time with it. I grew up with the, those westerns that he was referencing, and uh, I had a lot of fun with the movie. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, no no man on this planet will ever again make something like exactly like Night of the Living Dead, and to have that hanging over George for the rest of his life <laughs> is an albatross. I don't think any of us could carry. Uh. I I have to say that um, that I'm uh, very ambivalent. You know, I mean, the gray market's important. I heard you all talking about it earlier, and everything you said makes sense. But it has made it a bit more difficult to raise money for my projects because the investors are hip about that, and they say, well, it's going to get out before the film's released and cut into the profits. You know, so that from from where I am, that that's been actually a difficulty. Yeah. Because there's no preventing it. I mean, I can't. I can't quite see. And with digital, you know, it is so hard. I, I could be sitting at the laboratory supervising it, and somebody in another room is just sifting it over a cable. You know, I, I, there's there's no way to stop it if they want it. If they want to bootleg it. Oh, it's not. Ju- it's it's more than that. It's also uh, making or breaking the market for a film that hasn't even gotten out of the starting gate. Yeah. Well, yes, but as we were talking earlier, Human Centipede, you know, that took a while to be uh, released to the United States, but everyone was downloading it off torrents. Yeah. You know, it was just people want to see the film. And, you know, when you have all these roadblocks and it's acting like a motivational carrot and people really, really, really want to see the film, they're going to see the film, which is a sad fact of life about the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Can I interrupt for a moment? We have uh, 20 minutes left in the show, so if there are any callers or fans that want to call in for a few minutes, you guys have 20 minutes to do so. So here is your warning. Um, any fans or callers that have anything to ask or anything to say about Chaz, you have 20 minutes left. So uh, go ahead and call in. Go ahead, guys. Yeah, um, Just to pose the question real quick, um, just kind of keep the uh, ball rolling here. Um, what's uh, What are all of you going to miss most about Charlie, Chaz, uh, starting with you, Greg. I'm going to miss his friendship and the excitement that we would have over new projects because he'd always resurrect Deep Red and it was like a homecoming of sorts. And the thing is, is, you know, 
the world is different from 1988. You know, it's just anyone can walk over to a computer and see whatever they desire. So part of the fun was gone there. But I will miss Charlie's friendship. Uh, Steve. I miss Charlie. You know, I'm uh, I'm 55. We we bonded because we were both old hippies. <laughs> There's no <laughs> way to put it. And uh, you know, I teach now. I, I teach at the Center for Cartoon Studies, and it completely jazzes and energizes me every single day. We just finished our our semester this week. Um, I I miss Charlie. I would have loved to have been able to talk to him about that because Charlie would get jazzed by that kind of thing. I I I also have lost um a close friend that we had common touchstones and uh when you when you hit 55, late 50s, early 60s and you're starting to lose those friends who are touchstones, you really start to feel a whole era slipping away. You know, Captain Beefheart died today. <laughs> That's wow. That, that doesn't hit me on the same personal level as when Charlie passed away a year ago today. But, um, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm feeling connection, living connections with, um, uh, important aspects of my life moving away. And, you know, Charlie's death was a big one of those because I just miss being able to talk to him on the phone. I miss getting the, the call out of the blue. I, I miss the, the, the sense of humor and, um, even when we were commiserating, Charlie would always come around to, um, you know, some, some aspect of life that just made us both laugh. Uh, even when he was fighting cancer, you know, <laughs> uh, he was going through really bad chemo, um, two years ago. Um, and, uh, it was deer hunting season here in Vermont. And he said, uh, beset, you gotta understand. It's like, if you were going out in the woods with your rifle to, to shoot a deer, and you're trying to kill it by napalming the entire fucking Green Mountain chain. You know, I miss that <laughs> perspective that Charlie had. And, and it, that was accurate for how chemo worked. But it was also that he could maintain that humor even when he was in that hell of going through chemo to, to once again fight cancer. Um, man, I don't have a lot of friends that have that kind of spirit. I just don't. And uh, and I miss them. I really miss them. Yeah, I think we're all going to really miss him. I'm going to really miss him. Yeah, well, you know, Char- Charlie yeah. believed in tribe, and, you know, he, he was a tribal leader in that, and the tribe will go on. I am optimistic about that. I miss Charlie, but there is still the tribe out there. And when those things you're talking about come up. Show. Yeah, exactly. Steve, Thank yeah. you. Yeah, the inspiration one, for this show is people like Charlie. Mm-hmm. One final thought I'd like to share with Chaz about Chaz was he once told me that if I were a rock and roll song, I would be All Tomorrow's Parties by Velvet Underground and Nico. I would say <laughs> if Charlie was a rock and roll song, it would be Shine On You, Crazy Diamond You by Pink Floyd. And he is shining on like a crazy diamond. <laughs> well, for a moment, we're going to take a call from a fan that is calling in right now. Uh, 804 area code, you are on the air. Hey guys, it's Bobby. Hey Bobby, what's going on? Do you have anything uh, to say about Chaz in our last few minutes of the show? Well, I've been, I've been listening, and I'm 
I have a shame to say. I mean, I, I mean that I, I heard, I've, I'm familiar with Chaz, and I've been, I've been, I've heard his name so much over the years. But um, lately, it's like his, his work is so hard to track down. But um, so I've been trying, I've been, I've been trying to, you know, refamiliarize myself with um, his work for Deep Red and all. You know, trying, but I've been, I've been listening, I've been, I've been listening, and he just, and he just sounds like the kind of, kind of writer who I would have followed, followed all my life. I do. I don't remember. I remember early in the show, you guys were mentioning writers like Bill Landis, and I was familiar with Sleazeboard Express, and um, also uh, one guy named uh, Stephen Polchowski, who runs, uh, used to run this man. Great writer. Time. Steve is still doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does uh, Shock Cinema now. He put out this um, book of all his reviews from early, from early in the '80s that when he was running Slime Time, um, and, and of course it was just called Slime Time, and it's a great. Like one of my favorite books on my shelf, throw me on so many interesting, interesting movies. Some of them become my favorites. Yeah, that's, and that's what that's what really um, that's what a lot of horror and genre cinema are, are missing these days. Are the are the are these really devoted, passionate, uh, passionate, fearless writers? I mean, there's still I mean, there's still plenty of, there's still plenty of them around, but you know you don't uh, you don't find many like find many like them anymore. Especially you know since uh, since the the advent of the internet. I mean, like every, I mean, like everyone's doing it now. So it's, it's almost, it's, it's almost, it's almost kind of, kind of lost its, 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 its uh, unique qualities. Because hmm. because in the beginning, guys were like running these little, they were make, they were putting up, they're putting up their own magazines, uh, running them out of their house, or trying, or like trying to like grab the copyright work at night, just when everyone's gone home, trying to get the get caught. I mean, they're, I mean, almost can make, I mean, like. Almost breaking the law, was just 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 to get their stuff out there, and it was, and it was and it was brilliant. It was definitely worth definitely worth the effort. Especially yeah, the, the passion that they felt, is the passion that our, our guests felt, and uh, the passion that we feel on this show is, is the the love we have for the genre and the love we have for just film in general, just and wanting to pass on the love we have to other people. Because that's the passion that re- that really like moves us to do these kind of things, I think anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great notion, and I I fully agree with you, Nash. As you know, the other host on the show, that we don't make money off of this. We we really don't, and we'd like to, but we do this because there are so many people out there that like what we do, and enjoy it. And we wouldn't have any inkling of doing what we do unless it was was what we've read and grew up with with Chaz. And to us, that's important that, that there are people in the chat room right now. There are people like Bobby Morgan, who has called in uh, loads of people that we've seen on Facebook that have been excited about this show, not because we're doing it, but because we're paying respects to someone they love. And that really means a lot to us. But I know a lot of people tonight that are, you know, on the air that are listening, people that couldn't call in, lost a friend, you know, you lost a brother, you lost someone you respected. And, you know, people like Bobby and Ash and I, we've lost a hero. And it's, it's not fair and it's not fun, but, you know, we're very proud and happy that we had the chance for everyone to come together tonight and to get to tell their stories and their memories. And that's really what, what was important for this show, that this wasn't trying to make Death by DVD any more important than it is. We just wanted to, to have the pedestal for everyone to speak on. And we were yeah, even, so appreciative. Even if we didn't get guests tonight, we were still going to do the show. It didn't matter to us. I I was adamant about doing a Chaz Bowen show. I didn't care who was on it or who wasn't on it. It was I'm going to talk about Chaz tonight because he meant so much to my life and what I do now as an adult. 
I think Chaz would have appreciated that. Oh, yeah. That was our, our goal and hope. We wanted to do something that if Chaz was still with us, he would listen to. So <laughs> we hope we did our, our duty, and we hope we paid our respects to all of you who we're so thankful to have on the show. My pleasure. Yes, and thank you. Yes. Thanks for having us. And thank you, Steve. Thanks, Steve, for uh, staying up late with us. Hey, uh, great even pleasure. Even been through finals all week. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I didn't have to take them. I just had to give them. <laughs> <laughs> oh. You sound like my college professor. Oh, bad memories there. Um, <laughs> we also want to thank and Roy uh, Frinkus for uh, showing up tonight and giving their two cents on uh, on Charlie. Uh, thank you, you uh, Roy. I was glad to be here. Roy, great to great to hear your voice again after yeah, so long. Yeah, same, same. We've got what but, nine uh, minutes left, Nash. Uh, we got about six minutes left. So, uh, any closing thoughts that anybody has to say before we go off the air? Charlie was the right man at the right time. That's true. <laughs> so, Roy, does anyone else um, have any any closing to say? That we have a special song we'd like to play for uh, for Chaz before the show ends. Or our ending credit song. So, is there any other um, any closing statements? I mean, he, you know, it was a jolt when I heard that he had died. But, the, but in truth, um, he's still with me. I mean, he's still around. I'm, I've, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry he's not on this plane. But you know, I, it's I've, I've known him for so long and and enjoyed his stuff for so long that uh, it'll keep on going. Chaz was a big man, and he cast a big shadow. And there are a lot of big men who don't cast any shadow. Mm -hmm. He's still working his magic somewhere. Yeah. Yep. Shine on you, crazy diamond, you. (laughs) With that, I guess that will be the end of tonight's show. Uh, We we want to thank all of our guests again for uh, coming by and sharing all their stories uh, about Charlie with all of us. And... um, Hope that even people out there who haven't heard of uh, Chaz will look him up, get involved. I'm sure you probably own Rotten Cotton shirt you didn't even know Chaz Drew. But yeah, <laughs> he was an amazing artist, and you need to uh, check that out and just you know be coherent of who some of the great people were that are you know still affecting your life to this day. I mean, he affects me and Hank still, so I mean it's still moving on. So, as long uh, as I have a copy of the Connoisseur's Guide on my desk, I know that Chaz is still around and still an influence. <clears throat> and despite that he's not here, I'd like to thank Chaz for for everything that he's done for 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 Alex Nash and I. We we are so appreciative for the fact that he influenced us. And it's a terrible shame that we have to close the show knowing that he's not here to listen. But that's part of life, and we're more than happy to to be able to carry on what we've learned from us. Uh, from Chaz Bowen. So uh, this yeah, is Steve. You, this, this is Steve Bissett here, and I just think we should uh, also say uh, uh, goodbye to Pat Petrick, and I hope Pat is listening or or tunes into this show at some point. And uh, you know, Chaz loved Pat more than anyone in the world. So God bless you, Pat. Mm. We love you, Pat. Yeah, we yeah, we're all going for you, Pat. So uh, we're going to take the uh, show out on. Uh, a Chaz-like note, we're going to play a little Jimi Hendrix song, um, If Six Was Nine, one of his favorite Hendrix songs. So uh, until uh, next week, the ashtray is full, and Hank? The bottle's empty. Hmm. All right, so...
want to thank our guests once more for stopping by, and we're going to take you out with Ola Hendricks. See you next week, folks. wasn't it? If I can say anything, it's that I'm really, really, really proud of what we managed to do with this episode. Some of the things said by Steve, Greg, and Roy are just beautiful, and it's one hell of an experience. Coming back to it a decade later, it's still one hell of an experience. Reading these guys, reading Deep Red, fanzines in general growing up, it really started a passion in my life. Not just for genre films, but film in general. Without Chaz, uh, Greg, Steve... Men like Roy Frumkiss, uh, Stephen Thrower, Tim Lucas, Chris Gilpin, jeez, uh, uh, Dennis Daniels, uh, Phil Nutman, who I miss so much. I, I miss Phil so much. Without these guys, you know, I, I just, I'd, I'd really just, I feel I, I'd be a bland, passionless slug. These guys lit the fire for me, so to speak. I Alexander Nash, too. I mean, we just celebrated our 11th birthday. If I had, if I had never read Chaz, I'd just be, uh, you know, I'd just be Joe Jerkoff, easily amused by boobs and cartoon cats. Shit. All right, who am I kidding? All right, I am that guy. I, I am Joe Jerkoff. Fritz the Cat has boobs and cartoon cats. <clears throat> uh, all right, off subject. Also, by no means is this episode an honest representation of Roy Frumkiss voice. That dude has a great voice, and this just did no justice to that. For that, I uh, I do. I am sorry. I guess this is the end. I think this is going to do it for this episode. Usually at the end of every Death by DVD classic, I get killed in some violent and incredibly unnecessary manner. But I think we are going to skip the gimmick tonight and call it a show. The ashtray is full, and the bottle is... Oh. All right. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem.